Okay, so Mike, as you know, I've launched a brand new company recently, Gigantic, which can be found at gigantic.is. And just last week, we announced a partnership with your company, Product Collective, where we've produced an extensive three and a half month product leadership course taught by Ben Foster and his team at Prodify that can be found at training.productcollective.com. Yes, that is very true. But Wait, are we starting off this episode or are we recording an ad for Gigantic? Let's be real, Michael. <laughs> okay, I'm getting there. I'm getting there. So the launch was so successful that I now have calls lined up with potential students several weeks out. In fact, I am booked solid every 30 minutes for the next two weeks. That's pretty crazy. I mean, I, I actually knew that. You, you told me that before, but I'm going to pretend like I'm hearing this for the first time for the sake of the audience. You know, that's incredible. I appreciate it. I appreciate the enthusiasm either way. But so here's my problem. Starting just this week, about half of my calls aren't showing up, which one could say is normal for this type of meeting. But then I'll email or I'll text the folks when they didn't show up to reschedule. And I keep hearing, oh, I actually wanted to be there, but it never showed up on my calendar. Mm, that's kind of weird. Yeah, I thought so too. And then did a bit of research and learned that Google made some changes to the way it allows invites to be added to calendars, which had a dramatic effect on apps like Calendly, which I rely heavily on to set up all these meetings. Mm, that is not good. And yeah, I mean, a lot of people rely on platforms like Calendly and, and there's many others. Yeah, so look, I've, I've managed to reschedule most of them, but this could have been a major setback for us. And now the industry is abuzz with the notion that Google is trying to take down calendar competitors in the hopes that they'll win more market share for its workspace suite of products and compete directly with Microsoft 365 on. All right, it sounds like we might have another antitrust lawsuit in the works, perhaps? Possibly. We're gonna dive right into that after we roll the credits. Welcome to Rocketship.fm. Rocketship FM is produced in partnership with Product Collective. We are your hosts, Michael Saka. And I'm Mike Belsito. And first, a word from our sponsors. This episode is supported by Trustonomy, an original podcast from OneTrust. Every good relationship you have, personal or business, it involves trust. But we all know that trust doesn't just happen, right? We've all lost trust in a friend or a brand or a product. Trustonomy is a new podcast that looks at true stories from the past to understand how trust works and what makes it stronger and how to rebuild it when it's broken. Now, you know, I'm a sucker for a good podcast that weaves historical stories and relates it to what's happening today. So I thoroughly enjoyed this Trustonomy episode and recommend that you check that out as well. Search for Trustonomy in your podcast player. We'll also include a link in the show notes. Many thanks to the OneTrust team for their support. As artificial intelligence continues to revolutionize our world, there's a critical conversation that we can't ignore. AI safety and security. And that's where HackerOne's AI red teaming comes into play, rigorously testing AI models to prevent them from being misled or exploited. With over 750 specialized hackers in their community, HackerOne isn't just theorizing. They're actively safeguarding AI's future. Just recently, a team unearthed over 100 vulnerabilities in just two weeks. So whether you're at the helm of a startup or steering product innovation at a large organization, 
it's time to prioritize AI security. Visit HackerOne.com slash AI-safety-security. Again, HackerOne.com slash AI-safety-security. This episode is sponsored by Porkbun.com. Porkbun is a refreshingly different domain name registrar that's different from the other ones like GoDaddy or Namecheap. They've got low prices on hundreds of different domain extensions. They've got everything from .com domains to really cool ones like .pro, .dev, .xyz. Every domain name at Porkbun comes with tons of freebies too, like SSL certificate, who is privacy, DNS, URL forwarding, and hosting trials. Because why pay for things that should be free, right? All these incredible features and tools are backed by incredible support, 365 days a year, and more five-star reviews on Trustpilot from real customers than anyone else. Look, you can get a dollar off your next domain name from Porkbun and see why they're the best domain name register around by using our code. Just go to porkbun.com forward slash rocketchipfm24. That's porkbun, P-O-R-K-B-U-N dot com forward slash rocketchipfm24. You'll save a dollar on your next domain. Okay, so Google recently made some changes to the default setting for adding invitations to its calendar service that also just so happened to interfere with third-party products it competes against. Google has said it's just trying to block spam, while a lot of the people in the industry, they're calling foul. Yeah, and honestly, they're never going to come right out and say, oh yeah, we're actually trying to take down Calendly and make everybody use our own app instead. Exactly. The timing, (laughs) it's a bit suspicious, right? As they've been pushing their Workspaces product harder recently in order to increase shareholder value. And the calendar scheduling is now a premium Workspace feature that drives folks to upgrade. Yeah, and it's a brilliant upgrade. For the same price as Calendly, you get everything Google has to offer businesses like Docs, Drive, Sheets, Slides, Email, a calendar, and the list goes on and on. And this is a Google versus Microsoft battle. Google currently commands 46.41% of the market, while Microsoft edges them out just a bit at 48.1%. And Microsoft's been making some big moves this year. Yeah, they really have a completely new vibe. It's kind of impressive. Hopefully, that'll start to seep into the products as well. I don't know if you've used Outlook recently, but it's still a mess. Anyway, it's hard to tell if this is truly an antitrust issue or if Google is genuinely trying to curb the calendar spam issue that hackers have been leveraging uh, for some time. And they do use products like Calendly to produce this spam, which we'll get to in a minute. It's mostly an antitrust issue, a result of a clever product manager who's looking for a slight edge to drive growth in a tough market. So last July, the ad giant announced the addition of an option to display events on your calendar only when they come from a sender that you know. The rationale given was to provide a way to reduce invitation spam, a persistent concern among those using Calendar or any other service that supports permissionless interaction. Yeah, and Calendar spam is a growing issue for sure. Spammers can auto-generate event reminders just by sending emails with specific text. I'd get them from events and webinars I definitely didn't RSVP to, and then I'd get a string of email reminders making sure I was going to show up for this webinar that I didn't sign up for. I'm pretty sure these types are the result of quote unquote growth agencies that are trying to pump their numbers up, but 
There are certainly worse incidents out there. I mean, scammers have been exploiting calendar default setting, which, again, automatically adds invites to your agenda, even if you haven't accepted them. It'll also create that automatic reminder to notify you a few minutes before this event were to take place. The appointment names usually mention that you've won a reward or received a money transfer to sort of lure you in. The invitation would typically contain a link to collect sensitive data, such as your credit card or bank account number. Now, since the notification comes from an app people tend to trust, they pay less attention to its authenticity, which is precisely what attackers want. Google initially responded by highlighting settings that disable Gmail's automatic calendar entries, but the problem has reappeared. They've, they've found different ways around this. So uh, Google added the option to block calendar invites if the sender was unknown. These were all options that people could turn on if they were having issues. But then Google made the default the most restrictive version where they only allow calendar invites from known entities to the receiver. Sounds good until you realize that these interactions don't always happen over email. Yeah, or in Calendly's case, they're the third party who needs to be approved even after someone has spent the time to purposely select a meeting time. That's the case where this does start to feel like they could be purposely pushing out smaller players in the market to win more business for its own work suite products. And of course, this spam prevention measure doesn't apply to meetings booked through their own new competitive software, which naturally doesn't support any video meetings options except for Meet. And so when I started hearing that my calendar invites weren't making it through, I don't know, I, I was seriously considered switching over to their calendar solution just to prevent this. I mean, unfortunately, I, I already have eight calls a day booked through Calendly for the next few weeks. If more folks don't show, I don't know, this could be a huge setback for us. Yeah, and this isn't the first time that this issue has really come to surface. More on Google's history of antitrust behavior after a quick break. So before the break, we're talking about Google's latest act of walking that antitrust line where they've effectively rendered many calendar scheduling apps ineffective nearly overnight in the name of spam prevention. So why is this so harmful? Doesn't Google have the right to promote its own products ahead of the competition? Let's hear from Sally Hubbard, the senior editor of Tech Antitrust Enforcement at the Capitol Forum as she was speaking to the Milken Institute in 2018. About two years ago, I started to see a lot of conduct out of the tech platforms that really reminded me of the U.S. v. Microsoft case. So what I'm mostly concerned about with the tech platforms is that they are controlling the arena in which the game is played, and they are also playing the game. So the re result of that is that we have a playing field for competition that is quite distorted. <clears throat> Uh, and what I've called this is uh, platform privilege, and that's the incentive and the ability of a platform to favor its own products and services over those of competitors. Competitors that are also depending on that platform once they become dominant and become the main way to be discovered by consumers, for example. What they're describing is, if we were to compare to, say, the physical world, Local governments also owned and operated, let's say, grocery stores. And then, in order to ensure that they were successful, they prioritized building roads and developments around their grocery stores, making access incredibly easy and purposefully not building roads and access to the competitor stores. So because nobody can access the stores from the competition, 
they got a business. Driving more customers, in this case, to the government-owned grocery stores, giving them more leverage and buying power, allowing them to keep competition out of the market. This is what Google and Amazon are doing regularly, where they're operating both the search engine and potentially prioritizing their own products at the top of the result pages. Now, in Europe, for example, the European Commission fined Google 2.42 billion euro for breaching EU antitrust rules. The European Commission decided that Google had abused its market dominance as a search engine by giving an illegal advantage to another Google product, its comparison shopping service. That's right. In 2004, Google entered the European comparison shopping market with Frugal, later named Google Product Search, and finally Google Shopping in 2013. It enables consumers to compare products and prices online, including those from various online retailers, such as manufacturers, platforms like Amazon and eBay, and other resellers. When Google entered the comparison shopping market with Frugal, they were already established players. Google's own evidence indicates that Frugal's performance was relatively poor, as stated from an internal document in 2006. Yeah, they said Frugal simply doesn't work. So <laughs> comparison shopping services heavily rely on traffic for competitiveness, generating revenue through the clicks. So Google's dominant position in general internet search makes its search engine a significant source of traffic for all of these services. Consequently, more traffic attracts retailers wanting to list their product. Essentially, it, it determines whether these are viable businesses or not. Starting from 2008, Google adopted a strategy in European markets that relied on its dominance in general internet search rather than fair competition and comparison shopping. This strategy involved promoting Google's own service while demoting rival comparison shopping services and search results. So Google not only promoted its own service over competitors, but also pushed rival comparison shopping services to lower positions in the search results. Evidence revealed that even the highest ranked rival service typically appeared on page four of Google search results, while others were even farther down. Google's own comparison shopping service does not face the same demotions imposed by its generic search algorithms. Consequently, Google directed a significant amount of traffic to its own product by giving it preferential treatment and pushing competitor services onto page four or beyond, making them difficult to find. So this sounds familiar, right? Google is also facing lawsuits because they paid other platforms to ensure that they were the default search engine. Here's a clip from CNBC explaining the issue. The first suit that came out was the DOJ's suit that it filed along with 11 Republican attorneys general. And basically that suit focuses specifically on what it alleges are exclusionary contracts that Google made with different manufacturers. So I think the one that's maybe gotten the most attention is Google's uh, longstanding contract with Apple. Essentially, Google makes payments to Apple. Um, to be the default search engine on its devices. The DOJ is basically saying that by giving itself default status on not only Android apps through contracts with uh, Android manufacturers for devices, but also with Apple, that it's tying up the main distribution channels for general search. The latest lawsuit that came out from a group of 38 states, these are a group of bipartisan attorneys general. So it also focuses a little bit on its advertising technology, how it's used that to allegedly exclude competitors. And then the third lawsuit, the Texas-led lawsuit, uh, which includes nine other Republicans, Republican attorneys general, Texas is saying that Google 
saw that Facebook was going to make a competitive ad exchange and to head off that competition, entered an anti-competitive agreement with Facebook that it involved it rigging its own ad auctions uh, to favor Facebook in various ways. Google has denied that it's engaged in any anti-competitive conduct. It's saying that it makes these decisions for consumers. And it also is saying that they make it possible for consumers to choose an alternative. Google's empire uh, it really spans a lot. It's both search and advertising. The House Judiciary Subcommittee on Antitrust, the Democratic staff said that they have a sort of, uh, you know, interlinking monopolies um, and that combining those uh, features with user data really entrenches their dominance entrenches their dominance that pretty much says it all doesn't it yeah yes yes and there's another side of the story so we're not just gonna bash google because while they're dominant they're dominant because they're the best and that's you know that's their opinion and and that's their argument here there was a time when they had to beat out yahoo netscape ask jeeves and a host of other internet service providers for our loyalty and they won the market. So let's take a quick break and we'll be right back to discuss the flip side of Google's antitrust behavior. Okay, before the break, we heard about Google's history of antitrust behavior and the lawsuits they've faced as a consequence of that. But there's another angle to the story. They also provide their services completely free, which does democratize access to information in a way that was never available before. Here's economist and George Mason University professor Tyler Cohen. Almost all of you in this room use these services. Most of your use of them is free. You benefit greatly from this. You use them for a reason. Tyler, you right? pay in other ways, it's not free. Look at I take away your degree in economics if you say it's free. I Look agree, at online advertising. I use Facebook online advertising. I pay for it. It is much cheaper, much better, much higher quality, much better service than radio, TV, newspaper, many other options I have. It is not a monopoly. Facebook and Google have a lot of that market because they provide a better service at a lower price. And no, they did not elect Trump. So there's not evidence that is monopoly. U.S. antitrust policy is based on a standard of consumer harm. You have new options for advertising. In fact, Facebook advertising lowers the overall degree of monopoly in an economy because small and medium-sized businesses can reach the customers. These businesses could not afford, say, television and radio. So Facebook is the great engine of anti-monopoly. Facebook and Google have been highly innovative. The charge against Microsoft is that it wasn't. Most of all, if you look at consumer surplus, from those services and you ask, is there serious consumer harm? Not some anecdote you can pull out or what might they do? Or someone is gonna be first in Google or Bing or third. That's not something we can fix by the law. Ask the basic questions. Are consumers much, much better off? Is this still a dynamic changing market? Do we really trust antitrust to figure out how to set this right and what's been the most dynamic creative destruction laden period the last 10 to 15 years that we've seen in almost any sector ever i think right now we still want to encourage market innovation it's important to acknowledge the positive impact the company has had on businesses and communities 
Take, for example, the Google Economic Impact Report, which reveals some fascinating insights. Absolutely. According to the report, Google's contributions in 2015 amounted to a staggering $165 billion in economic activity, benefiting around 1.4 million businesses and nonprofits. It's remarkable to see how Ads and search in particular play a crucial role in driving clicks to these businesses, which in turn allows them to grow and creates job opportunities. It's incredible how the digital landscape has empowered businesses in which we couldn't have even imagined before. I remember reading about the Missouri Star Quilt Company, which serves as a prime example of this transformative power. With 250 employees, they have become the largest employer in their rural county. Through the internet, the Missouri Star Quilt Company has been able to expand its reach, shipping thousands of packages daily to customers all over the world. Al Doan, the company's founder and CEO, aptly highlights how their online presence has not only revolutionized their business, but also brought a positive change to their own town and family. Yeah, here's a clip from Forbes interviewing the founders, Jenny and Al Doan. It was about 2008, the market had crashed. We lost most of our retirement. And the children started looking at things that we could do in our retirement so that as we got older, we could not have to live in their basement probably was their motivation. They decided to buy me a quilt machine. We started it and the idea was just if we could make $10,000 a month, uh, then like 5000 would go to cost of goods and we'd have $5,000 to give to mom. I mean, it turned into a big family business when it was supposed to be a nice little side gig to help mom pay her bills. Alan came in one day and once he bought the quilt machine, he was looking at what happened with quilting online and it hadn't made the jump yet. And so he came and asked me if I wanted to do tutorials. And of course, my response to him was, sure, honey, what's a tutorial, you know? It was a big challenge that we had when we got started, right? We're a quilt company in Hamilton, Missouri, population 1500. Now find us. And I just looked at him like he had lost his mind. I'm like, nobody my age is ever gonna go on the computer to find out how to do anything. We have like 500,000 subscribers-ish, and we do about 150 million views total. Once we started putting out these tutorials, I started to get letters. And that's the thing that first struck me, that people were watching. And so it started sort of giving us that courage to go out and build a brand and build a message around these videos that then later became this huge draw. It's stories like these that showcase the true potential of the internet and the impact it can have on both small businesses and entire communities. It's crucial to approach these complex issues from a balanced perspective, considering the benefits and challenges associated with the roles of these platforms. Even when one side might be trying to ruin your tiny startup dreams like mine, we have to acknowledge the opportunities that they currently provide to small businesses, which should not be diminished. However, it's also important to address the concerns that arise when these platforms monopolize the market. Granting them excessive control allows them to manipulate attention in ways that may decrease the visibility of their competitors or increase the prominence of their own properties. The internet has evolved to become an essential part of our lives, akin to public utilities such as electricity, gas, water, sewage, phone lines, all of that. Article 27 of the UN's Universal Declaration of Human Rights emphasizes the right to freely participate in cultural life, enjoy the arts, and share in scientific advancements and its benefits. Although internet access itself may not be classified as an inalienable human right, given that modern culture is predominantly found online these days, it strengthens the argument for recognizing the internet's utility status. 
when dealing with such a vital utility raises important questions about whether a few private companies should dictate the information that people see. Exactly. We're witnessing an increasing reliance on the internet for various aspects of life, including communication, education, commerce, and entertainment. As more activities transition to online platforms, the influence wielded by these private companies over the flow of information becomes significant. The potential implications on societal and cultural dynamics cannot be ignored. It prompts us to reflect on whether the current concentration of power is aligned with the principles of openness, diversity, and fairness. Yeah, absolutely. The concentration of power in the hands of a few private entities, it raises concerns about potential biases, censorship, and the limitation of diverse perspectives. When crucial decisions regarding visibility and access are made by these entities, it poses a risk to the principles of democracy, innovation, and even individual freedom. Striking the right balance between fostering innovation and competition, all while ensuring that these platforms do not unduly influence the information landscape, it's a challenge that requires very careful consideration. Absolutely. We need to find solutions that address these complexities. It's essential to strike a balance that preserves the opportunities and benefits these platforms provide. But we can't let them get too much power and create a unfair and, and unbalanced competitive landscape. So we're going to need collaboration between policymakers, industry stakeholders, and the public to explore regulatory frameworks that promote innovation, protect consumer rights, and foster healthy competition. Now, Mike, I don't know how we ended up here just talking <laughs> about Google and Calendly and my little scheduling issue, but... I like it. Yeah, you know what? I think it was necessary to get to this point here for <laughs> sure. So we'll have to keep an eye on all of this for sure. But really, it's going to wrap things up for today. So with all of that, from Michael Saka, I'm Mike Belsito, and this is Rocketship.fm. Thank you so much for listening to Rocketship.fm. It is your support that keeps the show going. If you can, take a second and leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts. It helps out the show so much. We're also part of the Podglomerate Network. And if you'd like to listen to more great shows from the Podglomerate, go to thepodglomerate.com to see the full show listings. Rocketship.fm is produced in partnership with Product Collective, a community for product people. Go to productcollective.com and get access to our weekly newsletter, live video interviews, Slack community, product job board, and a whole lot more. Again, just go to productcollective.com.